in. <laughs> Who's typing? Oh, can you hear that, Brian? Sorry. Yeah. But make sure your phone's on mute, too, and your computer's on mute. So... Will do. Brian's a real stickler. Well, I, like I can tell you. I like it. He's good. <laughs> it's all about the audio. All right, we're, we're starting. <laughs> okay, go, all Brian. Right. Go. Crying out loud. All right, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Your Amigos Podcast. We are honored today to have uh, Monty Paul from City of Hope, who's now a professor of medicine, as I understand it, and runs the kidney cancer program there. Welcome, Monty. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here, Brian. Uh, and Tom and I are here, and we're going to talk about non-clear cell renal cancer today, which is a special interest of Monty's and I think has been a, a challenge to the field of, of kidney cancer for a while, how to define it, how to treat it. And so we'll talk about a little bit of that and maybe talk about uh, the role of genomic testing and then maybe what's sort of happening from a trial perspective. So I'm going to turn it over to Tom now. He did a Twitter poll about how patients are, how doctors are approaching these patients, and he can share the results. And then Monty, maybe you can comment on what you think of the results. Great. Thanks, Brian. As you know, I have an exceptionally successful Twitter account <laughs> um, with, with over 40 followers. Um, and um, of those followers, we asked a really simple question, um, which essentially was, how would you treat, we were specific uh, in terms of frontline papillary renal cancer. And um, the, the answer I got, I thought was a bit surprising. Um, in that we actually, if you look at sunitinib and pazopinib um, as a main treatment, you're getting about, call it 25% of those patients. Cabazatinib, about the same. Um, almost no one giving monotherapy, immune therapy. And then about half the people, again, giving um, either a PD-1 with um, CHA4, if you need though, I guess, or um, Pembro, Paxi. So just to repeat that, half the patients getting VEGFTKI, cabazatinib being the most popular, and the other half getting a PD-1 inhibitor with the addition of a second drug. Um, Monty, what yeah, do you, you think? Know, about... I think it makes sense. You know, we're starting to see more and more evidence for cabazatinib in the context of non-clear cell kidney cancer. And I always think to Lauren Harshman's recent paper uh, in Lancet Oncology, really nice multi-center effort where they took over 100 patients with non-clear cell kidney cancer. Uh, really probably the most impressive data that I've seen to date in this context, median PFS with CABO was around six and a half to seven months. Clearly indicates that we've got a long ways to go, but I think fairly compelling nonetheless. And Monty, do you think that's different from the other TKIs in this setting or, or frankly different than Pembro? I mean, the cohort B from 427, you know, at least in the papillary, and I know there are differences across the subtypes of non-clear cell. Brian, why don't we talk about immune therapy in a second? Let's just concentrate initially on that first question, which I'm really interested in. Do you really think cabozatinib is a better drug than pazopinib or sunitinib in this setting? What evidence do you have for that? And what's the biological rationale? Yeah, yeah sure enough. You know, oh, well, I'll start with the biological rationale. Whenever we look at these non-clear cell cohorts, they tend to be dominated by papillary histology, right? Um, and I think that there's some nice work out of the French group, Laurence Albige, as part of her PhD work, did uh, this assessment of 220 patients in the French network, really suggesting that across the spectrum of type 1 and type 2, you've got overexpression, mutation, et cetera, in the MET proto-oncogene. And I think that's really what's driving the responses to CABO. Now, that question of which is better, CABO versus sunitinib versus axitinib, 
And we don't really have an answer for at the moment. Uh, we are shortly going to be hopefully releasing the results of the PAPMET study, which is uh, a large U.S.-based effort comparing cabozantinib to sinitinib and actually to two other putative MET inhibitors, uh, crizotinib and savalitinib in patients with papillary RCC. Hey, Monty. So just before we get there, Monty, just before we get there, I'm currently giving sunitinib or pazofenib. I actually give these patients pazofenib. Am I you know, I, I don't know. I kind of think back to some of the prospective evidence that we have. Uh, you know, Nazar Tamir had this series from MD Anderson, um, a prospective series of patients receiving sunitinib therapy. You know, median PFS was 1.6 months with sunitinib. Uh, response rate, 0%, right? So, you know, I, I think we probably all have our anecdotal reports. In fact, you know, Brian and I have shared some cases of patients with papillary with exceptional responses to sinitinib. But if you look at the data... Monty, can please. I interrupt you? I'm sorry, Monty. But just there was prospective randomized data, um, two randomized trial, Everlimus versus sinitinib in non-clear cell, and the results were better than they, that, they, they? They certainly were. They certainly were. But that was a real mixed bag, wasn't it? Yeah, that was... So you... So, so dare I say it, you've fixed the worst. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I certainly have. I certainly have. But, you know, I have to tell you, when, when I look at those studies that you're referring to, Aspen, ESPN, et cetera, you know, those are such mixed bags of different histologies. It's hard for me to necessarily say that, you know, it was any better than Everolimus in those cohorts, right? I mean, you had, if I recall correctly, 10 or 11 patients with papillary histology uh, in the ESPN trial, for instance, uh, that, that received sinitinib and everolimus respectively. So really hard to make any definitive conclusions from those studies. I think really what we need are a prospective series evaluating just one or two histologies at the very most. So I agree. Tom. Before I hand it over to Brian, Brian, I'm going to hand it over to you a second, Brian. I'm going to hand it over to you a second. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. So Brian, what I'd like you to talk about is I'd like you to talk about the immune piece of this. I'm going to stop in a second. I just want to hear a little bit more about savalitinib, which is a specific MET inhibitor. I know there's a JCO publication in that where it looked like those individuals were chosen. I know there's a trial called Savoir, which is a randomized study comparing sunitinib with MET inhibition. Is is this actually what we should be doing? Is we should just be targeting those patients specifically, doing doing the genomics, looking for MET alterations, and giving them MET inhibitors? You're asking me or Monty? That's, oh, why don't you, Brian? <laughs> so I, well, I was going to ask Monty a question. I mean, my, my read of MET in papillary kidney cancer is we keep getting told how important it is in papillary kidney cancer, but there's not really clinical data to prove it. And, and Monty, maybe your PAPMET trial is an example of that, although we don't know full results where the, the arms with the pure MET inhibitors were, were closed. So I assume that means they didn't do wonderfully. Um, now we'll see when the full data comes out. And I'm not sure that the activity of Cabo in this setting is anything but its VEGF activity. So, so I think in germline MET mutations, a totally different story. But for somatic mutations, I'm not, I just personally, my feeling is I don't see the clinical data that convinces me that MET is important. And maybe when PAPMET comes out and we have a Cabo versus Sutan, in essence, in this population, we'll have some handle on that, although not a perfect handle. But I, I'm, I'm, I remain unconvinced. You know, I would say maybe the most compelling evidence for the role of MET comes from that phase two of savalitinib uh, that Tom just brought up. You know, when you, when you think about that study, and Tom, you and I were both a part of this one. We published in JCO a little while back. Uh, if you look at that MET-driven population, folks with mutations, folks with amplifications, you see a progression-free survival of about six and a half months, just one and a half months if you actually don't have MET-driven disease by that definition. 
it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in Savoie, for instance, when whatever we have from that trial reports out. Um, but I have to tell you, I, I think there's something to this Met story. Okay. Well, I think we'll find out. I think we'll find out moving forward as some of these prospective trials. I'm hoping that, um, you know, in uh, a year or two from now, we're actually not treating patients with these, these VEGF receptor inhibitors that we're treating with immune therapy, because I think there's a chance for durable response. Thank great. You. Do you like that? Brian, that's great practicing thing. Well that. Done. So let's talk about immune therapy in uh, papillary or non-clear cell in general. I think the biggest cohort was from Keynote 427, so-called cohort B, um, which had, I'm looking at the data here, 165 patients, 118 were papillary, and then about 20-ish each of chromophobe or unclassified. So predominantly a papillary study that had a response rate of 28%, including 6% CRs. Um, and I'll find the PFS in a second. So, Mani, what do you think about that data and the role of immunotherapy in general? Very, very compelling. Very, very compelling. You yeah. know, I, I definitely think that there's certainly an argument for IO in this setting. I have to tell you, you know, it's sort of individualized to the patient, but, you know, I have no pause going to IO first and following with a TKI. In fact, that's what we allow for in the PAPMET trial. Um, I think the big question that remains, and I, I saw this pop up in your Twitter poll, Tom, is whether or not we jump to a combination of the two. Um, but certainly I think there's a role for IO here. And if you look, so I'm looking at the poster, which was updated at ESMO, the median PFS was four months, not terribly impressive, but uh, looks like a tail of the curve um, at about 20% out to 18 months, fairly limited follow-up, et cetera, all the usual caveats. But it's funny in that poll, Tom, you wonder, why more people aren't giving IO monotherapy, right? You have a, a you know, 30% response rate, 25, 30% response rate, plus 6% CR, which we're not seeing with targeted therapy and perhaps the tail of the curve or at least IO-based therapy. And I, I think it might just, my answer with that, it might just be habit. You know, people are used to giving TKIs. My, my question, my, my question to both of you is the following. Do we have enough evidence to, well, we clearly do we have enough evidence to give pembrolizumab instead of cabazafenib or sumatinib, yes. number one? So you're, um, yes, Monty, yes or no? Yeah. Yes, reasonable. Okay, do we have enough evidence to give axipembro or ipinevo to those uh, to, to in, as it stands? Yes or um, no? I, I think it's reasonable to do, but to answer your question, we don't really have enough evidence. <laughs> No, not and and Monty. Yeah, it's there's there's. So why fifty percent of doctors saying it's their first line choice? What the, that a combo is the first line choice? Well, because you have yeah, that, I mean at least in the, at least for Pembro, you have activity of each of the individual components, right? You have the keynote data we just talked about. I think the Spanish did an AxiPAP study, and I don't know the numbers offhand, but had activity as you would expect for TKI. So the so I think the combination is reasonable, even despite I'm not aware of really any data in non-clear cell for axipembro and very limited in for ipinevo. So Monty, so Monty, question to you, please. Um, and then Brian, same to you. Let's say 55-year-old male, papillary renal cancer comes in, let's say for the purposes, because most people aren't molecularly testing, let's say you're not molecularly testing this patient to start with, otherwise fitting well, 
with liver metastasis and performance status fit for therapy. What's your first line treatment? And Monty, I know your trial is important and we would all encourage people to take part in trials in this space. I think that's the first thing to say. We'd all agree that let's put patients into trials because we have almost no evidence in some areas. But putting that to one side, yeah, what's sure. your I'm going to start with Monty? CABO in most cases and then go to IO as my second line. Uh, I typically I follow with Nevo. You know, I have to tell you, it's a little more challenging for us to get Pembro just based on the label uh, for advanced renal cell, those stateside, no issues okay. getting Nevo second line. But the, the data is strong oh, with doubt. Pembro. Would without you agree a doubt. So I generally will right, give Axi Pembro up front for the reason I just said, even despite the data. And then second line, I'd probably give a TKI like, okay. and I'd probably give Cabo in that setting. So that's really the same as my uh, algorithm for clear cell. But so in... I'm the same as Monty. I'm I'm giving I'm doing the same as Monty. I said before sunitinib. I'm actually giving sunitinib, pazotinib, and cabozatinib interchangeably to these patients. I don't think personally there's a huge difference between the three, and I'd like to see some data show that. Many times we think we know what we're doing, or I think I know what I'm doing, and I get it completely. <laughs> Tom, wrong can again. I ask one last question so, uh, to sort of finish many, this many... up? So I think uh, yes, yes. Tony had put up a Twitter yeah. poll about the role of genomic testing in papillary, and I don't have the results in front of me, but it was pretty evenly split. I think it was how often do you send it? And it was never, rarely, sometimes, or always. And it was fairly evenly split across there. So I'll ask Monty, when, if, when do you use genomic testing, some sort of NGS testing in these patients? How often do you use it and, and when in the course of their treatment? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a bit of an unusual answer there. I mean, I order it all the time at my institution. There's no cost to the patient associated, which which is a big deal, right? I mean, if there's sure. five, six thousand dollar tabs, I'd stay away from it, perhaps. And, and I'm actually doing it not so much to get met status, right? Because my algorithm pretty much remains CABO followed by IO, regardless. Um, but what I am using it for is to identify those outliers. So you know, a couple of years ago, we had this just amazing series, and I've seen a couple of these patients since then with ALK alterations. Um, and now this is a World Health Organization designated subtype. And these patients with ALK alterations actually respond beautifully to drugs like lectinib that our lung cancer yeah. colleagues are using. So I, I'm really doing it to pick out those outliers. And how often, if you test 100 patients, how often do you get a result that you act on? You're probably going to get one or two, to be honest with a you. We, yeah. we dug into that foundation database and found 0.4% of patients with renal cell carcinoma bear these ALK alterations. Um, yeah. Perhaps in a cumulative fashion, you might pick up on a couple more. Yeah, or, or other relevant alterations. But yeah, I agree. Brian, it's pretty low. Who? Brian, I'm not testing everybody, although I think it's reasonable only because there might be trials or you might get those outliers. And, and we, we just summarized that there are active studies, but, but no really agreed awesome you know, regimens for these folks. Um, I tend not to send it right away. I tend to send it as people get through one or two treatments and they're still healthy and we're sort of getting to the more, a little more desperate stage. Uh, again, depending on cost, which is more institutional and state-based, um, I tend to send it in a more refractory setting, but but admittedly don't really know what the right approach is. So, so is it fair to me to say to both of you that currently pdl one testing and MET alterations are of hypothetical interest to you? Uh, to me, certainly. Yeah, yes. I think so. I think so. Fair. <laughs> but on that happy note. Yeah, I think we can wrap up. This was fun. I think, um, you know, there's a lot we don't know about non-clear cell. We didn't even get into the different biologies and, and preclinical data. Um, I think we're all looking. For... 
Sure. Brian, just before we wrap up, maybe we've talked a lot about papillary renal cancer. Is it fair to say it's been exclusively papillary renal cancer so far? Can we just talk about chromophobe and other think, types that we haven't sure. talked about? I'll, I'll, let me make a the, comment. Is it, is let it me make exactly a comment the and then same. I'll let Monty um, yep. talk, you know, give his comment. But, you know, in Keno 427, chromophobe, and there was only 21 patients, but looked like they had a much less, they were much less immunotherapy responsive. And I think there are other data sets retrospective to support that. So I think the approach is the same with that one caveat that I'm probably less likely to use IO in those patients. But again, they're, they're a rare subtype of a rare subtype. So I'm not really sure what to use. Monty, same question to you, please. Same, um, the subtypes of these patients and, uh, and, and, and yeah, beyond. Sure. I, you know, probophobe, I agree, tends to perhaps be more of a TKI sensitive disease as opposed to IO. Yeah, and then there's this, you know, sort of smorgasbord of rare subtypes, collecting duct, et cetera. And, and we've learned over the years how to manage these in a distinct fashion. Um, with some of these rare diseases, I doubt we're really going to have mounds of prospective evidence. So I think it's going to be so critical that you and I and Brian and, you know, our fellows, you know, essentially keep on spitting out these case reports so we can, you know, identify unique treatment strategies for those subtypes. Got a quick question for both of you before I finish. Um, I, one of the few times I've been booed off the stage <laughs> was when I, uh, when I, when I said, um, "Is actually the renal cancer doctors are we the right patients to be treating non-clear cell renal cancer?" Because all we've essentially done to these patients, although the biology is completely different, we've just adopted our clear cell treatments, VEGF-targeted therapies, and immune therapies. And would another group of doctors who actually are more perhaps inventive and are doing more specific trials perhaps like the trials you're suggesting um, um, Monty and some of the ones that you're doing are we the right group of people to be doing this have we done a great job so far and what should we do in the future not an easy final question but I'll say um, no we've not done a great job we've not done a great job defining the biology and doing you know subtype specific trials or molecularly directed trials now it is a very rare disease so what I was thinking of is, you know, barring from lung cancer doctors who really molecularly subtype, you know, the heck out of that disease, although obviously much more common. So the rare subtypes of lung cancer are still way more common than probably clear cell kidney cancer. So uh, I don't know if that's an answer, but those are my thoughts. Monty, I'm going to let you wrap up. Same question to you. Have we done these patients? Have we done a great job? Yeah, uh, we haven't done a great job, but I, I still feel that kidney cancer doctors are the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great place to end listen thank Cheers. you both very much indeed we'll see all right you soon. thanks man